Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 27. We left Paul, of course, battling a raging storm, and, and they're still there. And they're in the ship. And this is, you know, unless somebody uh, would think that this is some tiny little boat. This is not a tiny boat. You're going to see that. This is a big ship. And this is a big storm. And it's been raging for many, many days. And Paul, of course, the Lord has stood next to him and told him everything was going to be okay. How be it? He, you know, because he had to be in Rome. And so Paul's been restored as far as his courage. And, and uh, he's out there telling these guys everything's going to be fine. I'm sure at first they thought he was crazy uh, because it looked like they were all going to die. And, uh, but he was being optimistic. And so he tells them that the Lord has basically given them into his hands. And as long as they remain with him, they're going to be safe. So let's pick it up in verse 26. He goes on, he says, How be it, we must be cast upon a certain island. But when the 14th night was come, 14 days, man, 14 nights in this storm, as we were driven up and down in the Adria, about midnight the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country and sounded and found it 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it 15 fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea, under, the, under color, as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. I find it interesting when you look at this situation that Paul is a prisoner. But yet at this particular moment, Paul's the one calling the shots. Paul has went from incarcerated to basically being the captain of the ship. He's the one telling these guys what is going to happen because they listened to the captain. And we really don't know what happened to him. Uh, who knows where he was at? He might have been bound up in the hull of the ship. But there's something interesting to note, I think, that Paul was the one at this particular time, um, you know, giving the orders. And just as a side note, I didn't put this in my notes, you know, he says, unless you remain in the ship, no one can be saved. I do think it's interesting that here's Paul in this ship, and the ship was what saved these men at this moment anyway. Not unlike the ark when the Lord told them, you know, to come into the ship. And, and when you go back and read this story, and I can't wait to get to Genesis so that we, when we cover that, because so many people kind of see the Lord out there kind of helping herd the animals and, and, and even kind of closing the door up behind, you know, uh, Noah and his family. But in reality, when you read that story, it says the Lord was in the ship with them. And so he brought them in with him. And I, I just think that's interesting because Jesus, of course, is our ship on the sea of iniquity. And he has saved us from that. But I just thought that was interesting. So Paul's calling the, the shots right now. Look at Acts 27, verse 32. And then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them to take some meat saying, this day is the 14th day that you have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health. For there shall not a hair fall from your head of any of you. And so evidently, you know, these guys had not only been uh, forced fasting because of the weather, it would have been impossible to feed these guys, but also because of fear. 
they were fearing for their lives. You know, it is interesting that when you see people who find themselves in dire straits physically, uh, whether that would be because of illness or some other thing, a lot of times their appetite's the first thing that leaves because they're so concerned about their physical well-being. And so that's kind of the way these guys, because so Paul tells them, look, not a hair of your head is going to perish from you, so take something and eat it's for your health. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. Remember, it's storming. It's storming. It's, a ra- it's still going on. And yet here's Paul out there breaking bread. He's giving thanks and he's praying over this. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. What a, it's just a, a beautiful thing that Paul's there on the deck of this ship probably having to hang on to something, and at the same time, he's breaking bread, basically having communion with him. Do you see that? It's kind of really cool. Verse 36, And when they were all, then they were all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. And we were all in the ship, 203 score and 16 souls. Boy, that's a lot of people. Wow, 276 men on this boat. So this is not a small ship. But they were all of good cheer. Remember, when Paul first came up, they were not all of good cheer. (laughs) But just prior to this, remember last time we were talking, and I kind of made it an extended point when Paul said, but I believe God. You know, the angel had stayed, you know, the messenger of the Lord, we know it was probably Jesus, was the one who had stood by him and told him all things are going to be fine, but you got to go to Rome. And so Paul was encouraged. He was restored. And he said, I believe God. This is when he, when he related that story to him. He says, I believe God, and it's going to be just as the Lord said. And so he took heart, and now these guys are believing Paul because everything he said has come to pass, and so there's no reason not to believe him. So they also are of good cheer. They begin to eat, and so there's 276 souls on this ship. Look at verse 27 of Acts 20, or excuse me, verse 38, Acts 27. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. This is their latent. This is what they were carrying. So it was a cargo ship, and of course they were carrying wheat. Some of your Bibles might say corn, uh, but it was a product of there. It was a wheat, so they cast that out. And you notice before when they were casting everything out, they were casting the tackle. They were casting everything out but the the moneymaker which was the actual product that they were hauling. Now it's got to the point where they're throwing that even overboard. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore into which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust in the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea and loosed the rudders bands and hoisted up the mainsail to the wind and made towards shore. And falling into a place... Where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the fore part stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. So it's still a very, very powerful storm. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, Julius, this is a great guy, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they would... Uh, that they which could swim should cast themselves out first into the sea and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. This centurion, 
has taken a shine to Paul. We've seen this in the very beginning. He likes him, and he likes him a lot, you know. I do think it's interesting that, that sometime in your life as a Christian, often the Lord will give you favor, you know, with even non-Christians, sometimes more so with non-Christians. I have found this to be true in so many parts of my, in so, so many aspects of my own life, my own walk with the Lord. Uh, just as a side note, I just want to give you an illustration. I remember one time, many, many years ago, you know, we had uh, ventured into business uh, unwittingly into the laboratory business. And we had reached this part where we had to grow or get out. Uh, we had to, to get a bigger building. Uh, you know, we were actually breaking code. We knew this. Uh, the city had come down and said, look, you guys got to, you got to get out of here. It's, you know, so we had to find a building. The problem with buying property is it takes money to do that, <laughs> which we didn't really have at that time. And so I was sitting there, and we actually found this building, and they, they really, uh, it, was, it was going to be perfect place, perfect location. And uh, once again, we, uh, we needed the money. So I was just believing the Lord. And I thought, you know what? Uh, it's got to be God, because I didn't have the cash. And I remember it got down uh, to closing. It was that close. It was like five days to closing, and I, and I didn't have the monies, the, the deal that we had swung on this property, just to make a long story short, I didn't have it. And I kept, and, I, and so I took it to the Lord, and I said, you know, I, I'm going to look really stupid when I walk in here, because these guys are going to be really upset <laughs> with me, because I kind of presumed it. And, and just as instantaneously, the Lord said, well, you know, you, in James it says you have not because you ask not. I said, Lord, I've asked. And he goes, well, I know, but you need to ask. And I thought, man, I've been praying about it. And all of a sudden, the Lord laid this one man on my heart. He owned a huge laboratory up in Springfield. A good, wasn't a good friend at the time, but he, he became one. And his name was Ed Lockwood. And Ed owned a big laboratory in Springfield, Ohio. And I had become associated with him uh, just through business. But Ed was not a believer. He wasn't a believer. And I remember calling him up, and I thought, Man, I don't want to call. I don't want to ask him for anything. Lord, please don't make me do this, you know. He, he's not a believer. This guy's going to think I'm crazy, you know. And the Lord said, you have not because you asked not. So I got on the phone and I called him up and I said, look, Ed, uh, kind of got this business opportunity. And, you know, we, got a, we found this building. And uh, keep it in mind, I was talking about establishing a business that would be in direct competition to him. Okay. Keep that in mind. And I remember at the end, he goes, how much do you need? <laughs> then I really hated to tell him. Because then I told him, but it was, it was substantial. I'm not, I won't even mention how much it was, but it was a substantial amount of money. And he says, yeah, I, I, can, I can do that. I'll loan it to you. And I says, wow. I said, okay. And uh, he says, when do you need that? I said, you know, tomorrow would be great. And he goes, well, I can overnight that to you. I said, that's great. I said, but let me, let me mention one thing to you. I don't know if I can pay it back. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. And here's what he said. He said, Doug, if you ever do, you know, if you ever get it, just give it back. I said, okay. Now that went on. That created a friendship between me and him. And I had many opportunities to witness to Ed and to talk to him about the Lord. 
and many opportunities to take business from him one time and would never do it because I wouldn't bite the hand that fed me. I just wouldn't do it. And the Lord had used him greatly. But my point is this. My point is, is that God had given me favor with this man who wasn't even a Christian, you know? And as far as I know, and I haven't talked to him in many, many years now, uh, he later on wound up running for Congress and uh, it's a long story, but anyway, um, you know, it, it's just how the Lord has used so many people in, in my own personal life. And I'm sure maybe you've got stories about that too, how God has used unbelievers, you know. So giving you favor, not unlike Paul, who here he is, and this centurion who, you know, is a Roman and probably a pagan by his faith. We don't know at this moment whether or not he had started to believe. But he certainly has taken a shine to Paul. And he is protecting him, you know. And so he uh, stops these men and, and from, um, you know, doing what they were going to do. Where did I leave off at? Thank you. I finished it. Well, let's move on then. Oh, chapter 28. All right, here we go. <laughs> chapter 28, verse 1. And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. And uh, today that would be called Malta. Okay? So they've, they've landed on the island of Malta. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us, every one, because of the present rain and because of the cold. Uh, if your Bibles say barbarous, actually this is a, just a Greek slang that they used for anybody. It was actually the word barbar is what they would call them. And all it simply meant was somebody who didn't speak Greek. So the Maltians weren't, they, you know, you, when you hear the word barbarian, you kind of think of tribesmen running around with axes and whatever. It's, it's not, that's not, wasn't the case. They called them barbar and, uh, barbarians because they just simply did not speak Greek. Keep in mind, these guys have cast themselves in the water. The, and the, uh, the water is extremely cold. It's wintertime. You know, it's the Mediterranean. And during this particular winter storm, these guys would have been nigh unto frozen. Uh, you know, hypothermia probably would have been setting in by the time they got to shore. So these people of Malta kindled a big fire and was helping them get warm and dry. Acts 28 verse 3. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened onto his hand. Hmm. First thing I want to point out here with Paul is Paul was a doer. He was the one gathering the sticks. He was the one who had been given orders a short time earlier, but yet he was the one who was working. I just find that interesting. And you find this with every man of God, including Jesus himself. You know, these men are leaders. They're servant leaders. And so often it is hard to find. I think about Romaine, and maybe you guys probably sitting here don't know who I'm talking about, but many people who know Calvary Chapel and, and our background in that uh, understand that Romaine was the assistant pastor at Costa Mesa uh, until he went home to be with the Lord uh, for many, 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 many years. And Romaine was an old Marine Corps, you know. I think he was a master sergeant or something like that. He was an old Marine Corps guy. And so Maria, you know, he kind of had that gruff, you know, straightforward, here's what needs to be done. And he was a great instructor of deacons. And I never forget, you know, Romaine was the type of guy who, 
if somebody aspired to the office of bishop, pastor, assistant pastor, uh, didn't matter what it was, they had to go through Romaine first. And Romaine was the one because he wrote a book, which I always loved because and it was the picture on the book that I always loved. And the, it was just a drawing, but it showed a tuxedo just with no head. But it had a hand over here and a hand over here. And this hand, it had a plunger. And this hand, it had a Bible. And it was called Second. And I, and I always loved that book because it was direct and to the point that, you know what, if you're called to be a servant, you know, then, or minister, because it, th those words are the same in the Bible. When it says minister in the Greek, that's the word servant. That's what we're called to do. And so often within the body of Christ, you'll see men, and we're going to get to that when we get to Timothy, who aspire to that office because they like the title. And it's unfortunate. But that's what it is. Not because they have a servant's heart. Because they expect everybody else to do things, you know. But the fact is, is that Paul was a great example of that. Here he is, stranded, frozen, wet, and he's the one gathering sticks to put on the fire. And then what happens? Of course, no good deed ever goes unpunished. He goes to throw the sticks on there, and a pit viper comes out and latches onto his hand. Notice the first thing he doesn't do is start screaming. Notice he doesn't start crying. Notice he doesn't do any. What's he do? He shakes it off into the fire. But it, but it lashed onto his hand. Look at verse 4 first. It says, when the barbarians saw that the venomous beast hung on his hand, hand they said amongst themselves, no doubt this man is a murderer whom though fate, or excuse me, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffer him not to live. Hmm. They had one thing, right? Paul was a murderer. They didn't know that. That's not why he was incarcerated. But I do think it's interesting that they got that part of it right. What they didn't understand, of course, was the grace of God. That regardless of what a man's background is, regardless of what a woman has done, once they have come to Christ, it is a clean slate. You know, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I like it in the King James there because in the Greek text, it is a present tense thing. I know some people have a hard time with instantaneous conversion. I do not. Matter of fact, I see it every time in the Bible. When the Spirit of God descends and, and, and indwells a man or a woman, their life is changed. Their mind is changed. Things change, and it changes very quickly. Now, I realize that some things are progressional. But that changing of the mind is something that happens. Paul said it this way in the book of Acts, as you remember. He said it was like scales that had fallen from his eyes. You know, one minute I saw something one way, and just that quick, my eyes were open, and all of a sudden I saw the error of my way. And we're changed at those moments. You know, it's instantaneous. They thought he was a murderer. Well, he was. But he had been saved by the grace of God, and he had been saved for a purpose. Paul had a purpose. His purpose was to get to Rome. He had to witness to Caesar. And the fact is, is that he was going to get there. You know, years ago, years ago, I did a, a, a sermon, a topical one time, called derailed, or excuse me, delayed but not derailed, about the will of God. How the children of Israel had went around and around the mountain, you know. If they had went as the, as the crow flies, that trip would have taken them two weeks. But it took them 40 years because of their unbelief. 
And I, and I think that there's truth in that. But, you know, if I had it to preach over again, the fact is, is that you cannot derail the will of God in your life, period. The fact is, you're going to get from point A to point B. And, and here's something that I think the Lord really opened my eyes to in my heart in concerning his will. And, you know, because in Christendom, in theology, we hold these things that are progressional and positional. And what I mean by that is sometimes we even look at the will of God as being permissive will and the perfect will of God. And I think one of the illustrations we often see with this is, of course, Moses, when he was, uh, you know, before the burning bush and the Lord had called him to speak on his behalf and to go uh, to Pharaoh. And, and, of course, Moses, you know, kind of argued with the Lord because he was a man of stammering lips. And, and he argued, and, of course, the Lord gave in seemingly, and allowed his brother, Aaron, to be the one who spoke, even though the Lord said, I'm the one who made your mouth, don't worry about it. He would, no, oh, yeah, I'm no good at it, you know, I can't do it. And so he allows Aaron to do it. And some would argue that that was the permissive will of God. The perfect will would have been for Moses, of course, to just went and done it. But in the permissive will of God. But being the analyst that I am, and I can't help it, and, and the Lord really began to deal with me on this and to show me that in the heart of God, and I want you to think about the sovereignty of God for a moment, and what all that entails. God is God, amen? God, and there's nothing beyond him. I mean, we cannot comprehend his ways. The Bible tells us that. His ways are not our ways, and his ways are past our finding out. Think about this for a moment. Is it possible? Is it just within the realm of possibility, that within the mind of God, if we can even scratch the surface of that, which I don't think we can, but if we could, is it possible that every scenario that would bring about the will of God has already been played out by the Lord? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not a one this way or that way, but it is any way. That is the right way. As far as the Lord is concerned, if you're to get from point A to point B, that has been made up in the mind of God, regardless of the situation and how it is done. Do you, didn't you get what I'm talking about? I'm th you know, in quantum physics, and maybe I'm getting too deep, I'm not trying to, but in quantum physics, you know, they understand that the possibility, now I don't personally adhere to this, but I, they see it as a possibility of there being parallel universes, Okay that somehow there's these parallel, and, and they're infinite. Well, think of it kind of that way, but only in the sense that there's an infinite number of ways that the Lord has prepared for his will to be done. Do you understand? In your life. So that regardless of what you do, you understand. The children of Israel going 40 times around was actually a part of the will of God. It might seem like they were thwarting it. It may seem as though they were delaying it. But in reality, God used it. And we look at the illustrations that Paul even refers to in their unbelief and using that as an illustration to help us understand what true belief is. And we look back to their seeming mistakes. I just think that the will of God, and, and, and here we are with Paul in the same situation. He, remember, he told them, had you listened to me, brother? You should have listened to me because if you had to listen to me, we wouldn't be out here in this storm. But the fact is, is that was it not within the realm of God's will where they were at at any given moment? I say it is. I believe it. And I think if I ever get a chance to preach that sermon again, I will preach it differently. I don't think you can delay the will of God. I think you cannot derail it. The fact is, if your heart is to do what God wants you to do, you're doing it. You're there. You're right where God wants you to be if that's what your desire is to do. 
You know, and maybe even if your desire is not to do it. And I think about Jonah when I come to that. The fact is you're going to do it. And that's the beauty of God's sovereignty. That's the beauty of God. If you're his, then you're doing it. And I love that. How do I know the will of God? I know Jesus. And more importantly, Jesus knows me. Therefore, I can know what the will of God is because I'm doing it. You know, so often we see the will of God just like Jonah did, and we don't necessarily like it. We've got our own way of thinking. Jonah wanted to wipe them all out. You know, kill them all, let God decide. That was his, what he thought, you know. But God had a whole other plan. But yet, he used Jonah. And look at how many times we as preachers, and maybe just anybody, as we're witnessing, we've pointed to him as a good illustration and sometimes as a bad one. But nonetheless, nonetheless, Jonah did what the Lord called him to do. All right. So when the barbarians saw that this thing had latched onto his hand, they thought Paul was a murderer. And so verse uh, 5, it says, And Paul shook the beast off into the fire and felt no harm. He just shook it off. You know, it was a stupid song, which I wouldn't even, you know, shake it off. You know, he did, literally. It never says he even cried. He, never, he didn't, like, you know, let out no yelling or whatever. He was in the midst of doing something that needed to be done, the necessary thing. You know, warmth was needed. Heat was needed. They were wet, they were cold, and they wanted to be dry. And so he was simply gathering wood. He puts it out there in this pit viper, which is a venomous snake, and evidently very venomous because the people of Malta saw it, latches onto his hand, and Paul simply shakes it off into the fire. Now, how be it they looked when they, when it, when they should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly, but after that, they had looked for a great while and saw no harm come to him. They changed their minds. They repented. <laughs> Except maybe in the, totally to the wrong way. And they said, he was a god. Oh, the fickleness of people. The fickleness of seeking the adulation of men. Listen. Every time I come across, every time I've taught through this passage, or every time I have a passage that relates to this, do not, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in the Lord, do not seek the adulation of people. Do not seek a pat on the back. Do not seek. Why? Because eventually you're either going to be a hero or a zero. You're either going to be a god in somebody's eyes or you're going to be a murderer and the devil himself and maybe within an hour of each other. Why? Because people are fickle, including people in the Lord. And that's sad. But that tells us to do what? Keep our eyes on Jesus. You know, the world says that we should seek the adulation of men or of people in general. And their approval. What the Word of God teaches us is that we should seek the adulation from God and His approval. It's little regard. You know, Paul the Apostle, as we get to the book of Corinthians, he will tell them, it's a little thing, brother, and a very small thing that I should be judged of you. There's one who judgeth me, and that is the Lord. I like the fact that Paul stood before Jesus Christ, and he saw it as though he stood before the Lord only. Now listen, we all want to be liked. We all want, I mean, I want people to like me. 
You want people to like you, but it's inevitable. I've had people who hate my guts and sometimes for no reason at all. Why? Because they simply listened to me on radio and I said something that they didn't like, even though I've always warned people. When you start listening to me, listen, one thing is for sure, I'm going to offend you some way, somehow, someday. It's not my intention. I don't want to do that, but it's going to offend you. Why? Because as you go through the Word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, you can't help but come across some verses that's going to tweak the way that you think. And it's going to tweak. It's not me doing it, but I'm the messenger, and so I'm the one who gets killed for it, you see. And so a lot of times people will just cop it too. But you know what? They'll do that anytime. So it's better off just to not seek it, serve the Lord, worry about His approval, and not the approval of the world, especially those within the church. This is what stops a lot of pastors from being honest with their congregations, gang. Why? Because they are afraid of offending them. And for several reasons. For their paycheck's sake, and for the sake that they simply want to be liked. Listen, I have to stand before Jesus Christ one of these days and give an account of the things that I have taught. I have to admit that sets a little higher on my priority list than what somebody might think of me and what my theology might look like. So once again, we want to be true to the word, we want to be true to our calling, and we want to be true to seeking the Lord's uh, approval and not that of men. Because as we can see, it's fickle. You, all you got to do is look at the sports era, you know, arena. In one minute, if a guy's doing great, you know, he's their hero. If he fumbles the ball and he loses the whole season, he's a zero. And that can happen within the space of one game. So it's a foolish thing to look for the adulation from the world. It's just, it's too fickle, so don't do it. Look at verse, uh, chapter, or chapter 28, verse 7. And in the same quarters were uh, possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, uh, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. So not only did these guys help them build a fire and everything else, you know, here you got the chiefman of the whole city who is now, or the whole island, excuse me, who has uh, kind of befriended these guys and taken them in. Uh, once again, the Lord giving Paul favor uh, with a lot of people, even heathens, in order to get him to his place because he is right in the will of God. Verse 8, And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, and, of course, Luke was the one writing this, a doctor, so he's kind of giving you the uh, prognosis there, or the, uh, or the diagnosis, I should say. To whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also, which had diseases in the island, came and were healed. So who also honored us with many honors, and when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. And so Paul's there. This man has a, you know, a, a, a family member who is sick. And so Paul goes in, lays hands on him, and the man's healed. And so the Lord now is using Paul to do a work among the Maltese people. And as we see Paul, even though he's incarcerated, even though he's went through storms, and he's been, now he's been bitten by a pit viper, and, you know, they thought he was going to die, and all this stuff. Yeah, he's the one who's doing the healing. God's using him, of course to do that and to draw people to himself. Verse 11. And after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the isle, whose sign was Castor and Pollux, and of course, Greek mythology, the twins, you probably know that. 
and landing in Syracuse, and we tarried there three days. And from thence we fetched a compass, and that means they turned around the other way, and came to Reglium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and we came the next day to Patoli. And where we found brethren, and were desired to tarry with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. Once again, he's in the will of God, and that's what he's going to do. And from thence, when the brethren heard us, they came to meet us as far as Apiliforum, or Apiforum, excuse me, and the, three, and the three taverns, which is another town, whom Paul saw, and he thanked God and took courage. I think it's amazing that regardless of where you're at in the world, when you run into other believers, especially a group of them, instantaneously you feel like you're at home. You know, so often and when, when I would go to pastor's conferences and those type of things and uh, we would be invited to stay with some of the people there, it was always a blessing. You know, they, they treated you most of the time like the Lord himself. And it was just such a blessing. And you did feel uh, encouraged. You just felt I don't know, like you just, you got your batteries recharged or something. It was just a great time. And Paul absolutely uh, is experiencing the same thing because these people had uh, run into him and of course they sought him out and now he's being encouraged. Look at verse 16. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was allowed to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. And so, Paul doesn't get stuck in the common prison. Once again, he has the favor of the Lord on him. And he, get, he has to be chained to a, you know, a, 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 another soldier the whole time. But he does have his own private place. Now, I think that's interesting. Now, I heard a guy, I heard a guy one time talking about how miserable it must have been to be chained to a guy. Now, I've got to be honest with you. As a preacher, I would love to be chained to a guy that was a permanent audience to the gospel of Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like if I'm going to be incarcerated, at least I got somebody to preach to. And Paul, we know for a fact, had converted many of the Roman soldiers to Christianity by the time that he left there the first time. So he has this chain about him, but at the same time, the Lord working within that confinement allows him to continue to preach the gospel. And I think that's amazing. That's the sovereignty of God. So no matter what the situation is, God is allowing him to do what he has called him to do. And so eventually he's going to go to Rome. And, uh, but it's absolutely amazing. Look at verse 17. And it came to pass, after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. And when they were come together, he said unto them, Men, brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people, or customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, would have let me go because there was no cause of death in me. But when the Jews speak against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar. Not that I had any aught of, uh, of, or accusation or to accuse my nation. So Paul has these guys come, and these, of course, are the Jewish leaders of that town, and he's convincing them and showing them. He's going, look, I, I didn't say anything negative against the law or against Moses or even the nation, and I didn't come here to accuse the nation. I had no choice because they were forbidding me to be released, and so I had to appeal to Caesar. So he's kind of telling the, the Jewish council there at Rome, 
that he wasn't there to accuse any of them uh, or the Jews in general to, to the Romans. Because keeping in mind, the Romans were occupying Jerusalem at that time. And it would have been a big mistake for Paul to make an accusation against the Jewish nation if he had any plans of winning any of them to the Lord, which he did. But that wasn't his purpose. That's not why he had went there, and he wanted them to know that. Look at verse 20. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you, to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. And, of course, Paul talking about the hope of Israel, he's talking about the coming Messiah. They knew. You know, the Jews to this day, and I'm talking about those who are Orthodox, you know, are still waiting for the coming Messiah. You know, they haven't accepted Jesus. They, they, they don't believe that he was the fulfillment of that. It's, we'll talk about that here in a moment. Because they're still waiting. You know, they're still waiting for that. That's why at the Passover, if any of you came to last year's Passover... You know, there's always a, a placing set for Elijah because they still believe that Elijah must come first before the Messiah. So they're still, you know, they, they, and then at the end of dinner, of course, the youngest gets up and goes and opens the door just in case Elijah shows up, you know. Well, they came to Jesus one time and his own disciples, of course, understood that verse. They knew that prophecy. And by this time, they understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy. They understood that he was the Messiah. But yet that question was ticking around in their brain. And so one day they said, Lord, the word says that Elijah must come first. Jesus said, Elijah must very well come first. But if you can receive it, Elijah has already come. And he spoke to them of John the Baptist. But he came and he said, and they did with him what they will. And so they killed him. And so John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah. But see, the Jews don't accept that. And so they do not accept Jesus Christ as the fulfillment. So Paul was there to speak to them about the hope of Israel, the hope of the coming of the Messiah. Look at verse 21. And they said unto them, we neither receive letters out of Judea. Now remember how much they hated him back there they were trying to kill him he the, the reason he's in rome is because of them and here's what these guys said we neither received any letters out of judea concerning thee neither of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee but we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest for as concerning this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against and when they had appointed him a day there came many to him in his lodging, to whom he expounded. I want you, if you're making notes, make note of that. He expounded. He expositorily taught through the scriptures. He expounded unto them and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets and from morning until evening. If you're making notes, take note of that. From morning till evening. You know, I realize that my sermons sometimes are an hour. But it's not from morning till evening. So you guys get off easy. You get off easy. You know, he was there from morning till evening. Now, many of the Jews knew about that sect. He's talking about the Christians. But they wanted to know more about that way, you know. 
And so they were there at Paul. They came to Paul in great numbers, wanting to hear the evidence that he had. And that's really what he was showing them from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He was giving them the evidence that Jesus was the fulfillment of all those things. I'm sure that when Paul began his list of evidences, he undoubtedly took them to Micah 5 too. But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been from old, from everlasting. Paul, of course, was pointing to the fact that the Messiah would have been born in Bethlehem. I'm sure that Paul would have taken them to Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Paul would have been pointing to the fact that the Messiah would have been born of a virgin. I'm sure that Paul would have expounded unto them Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice and henceforth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Paul would have been pointing out to the fact that this child would be born the son of God and that he would sit upon the throne of David. I'm sure that Paul would have taken him to Daniel chapter 9 verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, the and the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. Paul would have been showing them from the scriptures that the seven sevens and sixty-two sevens were actually four hundred and eighty-three years, and from the beginning of the commandment that King Artaxerxes had given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem 483 years later brought him right to the week that Jesus entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. What were the odds of that? I'm sure that he pointed to Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly, riding upon an ass and upon the colt the foal of an ass. And of course, when he entered triumphantly into Jerusalem, that's how he came. And so fulfilling all of those prophecies, I'm sure that Paul pointed them to Isaiah 53, 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he, he, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And he was despised and we esteemed him not. I'm sure he showed him verse 12 of the same chapter. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Paul laid out the evidence, teaching them, expounding to them from the scriptures, from the law of Moses and the prophets. And what was their response 
I'm sure, to the more excellent way that Paul would have expounded the evidence of Jesus' lordship. Look at verse 20, uh, 24 of Acts 28. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. Some believed, some believed not. There's two camps. And everybody sets in one of them. Everybody tonight, whether we're sitting here or whether they're listening on radio or whether they're listening on Facebook or pulled this sermon up on the web or regardless, everybody listening to my voice right now are divided into two camps. Those that believe and those that don't. Now, to those that believe, in John 1, 12, he says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. But to those that believe not, he says in John chapter 3, 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It's important that we ask ourselves, which camp am I in? Where do I stand with Jesus Christ? Because you're either a believer or you're not. There's no halfway. You can't be on the fence concerning Jesus Christ. You can't be partially way in or partially way out. But it's an important question. Paul the Apostle would even write to the Corinthians. And he would tell them, search yourselves, brethren, whether you be in the faith. It's an important question. Look at verse 25. And when they agreed not amongst themselves and departed, after that Paul had spoken one word, well, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers. If you take a note, notice that Paul acquaints what Isaiah said to the Holy Ghost. I like that. You know, in Timothy he says that all scripture is given by, in the Greek it's the word theonoustos, is given by theonoustos, God breathed. It is given by inspiration of the Lord. And it's good for profit, you know, for reproof and for correction. So he says, well did the Holy Spirit speak by Isaiah the prophet, saying, go unto this people and say, hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing. And their eyes have they closed, and they, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and should be converted. And I shall heal them, or I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. I bet they did. And Paul dwelt two years, whole years, in his own hired house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So Paul preached the kingdom of God. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And so he taught them about those things which concern Jesus Christ. We are doing the same thing Today, we preach the kingdom of God and the King, Jesus Christ. A lot of people don't believe. Some people do. 
I would like to think, and I won't get into it tonight, that if the gospel is presented accurately, properly, that people will just come. Who wouldn't, in my mindset, the way I see it? Who wouldn't if it's properly presented? But yet a lot of people don't. What's the cause of that? I, I don't know. I think sometimes people allow their intellect, or what they call intellect, to get in the way of faith. They allow things of this life. They don't understand it, they, or they just don't want to accept it, or they don't want to be answered. There's, there's a plethora of reasons why people do not come to Christ, or why they do not totally submit to the Lord. But we will continue to preach and we will continue to teach because it is the Holy Spirit that giveth, you know. It was the Holy Spirit that allows people to come to that knowledge. Jesus said, no man can come except the Spirit draw him. And so I rely on that. It's not my job to convert people. My job is to preach the gospel, to teach the believers, and to allow the Holy Spirit. Because one man plants, another man waters, but it's God that giveth the increase. So as you read ahead this week, Go ahead and read uh, 1 Timothy, because we will be getting to that. But let's be thinking about the first coming. We're coming into this season, and, you know, it's an important thing. I mean, Christmas is one of those times when I, I really do think that we, you know, I realize the origins of it is not necessarily great when you look at it. It, it has some pretty shaky origins, but we can keep Jesus in the middle of it. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to preach the gospel and to really look at the scriptures and to see how Christ fulfilled that in his first coming. Father, we love you and we just thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that even tonight that as your word has went out that you would move upon the hearts of people, Lord Father, and have us, Lord Father, to question ourselves. Which camp are we in? Are we believers or have we rejected the gospel in our heart, Lord Father? And with some people, do they just go to church? Lord, I pray that you would just work upon them, Lord Father, that you would show them all that you have done for them through Jesus Christ. We love you so much. We thank you for all that you have done, all that you want to do, and all that you will do. And we thank you for your Son. So we just ask for your blessing upon your people, Lord Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.